Test. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, Charlie Test out there. Hello. Oh, they're off and running once again. The excitement is running rampant through the streets. Strong men are weeping. Women are crying out to their children. And children themselves are hiding in the privet hedges. The dogs are howling at the moon. It's time once again for that nut. I mean, you know what that is. <laughs> oh, wow. You've got to admit, Walt, I've got to turn a phrase. That guy, what was that kid's, what was that kid's name, Chip McConnell? He knew what he was talking about. Someday you're going to read it and find out why. Ach, the lieber Augustine, 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 ach, the lieber Augustine. Oh, do I know some terrible lyrics to that one? That's just awful. Just, uh, how, how are things going with the human comedy out there, gang? Would you bring me a little human comedy music on there, please, Walter? The old human comedy staggers And so tonight, this serious, concerned radio station uh, salutes another little... Uh, a little example of the human comedy had its full best. From the silly section of the New York Times this past Sunday, uh, I read to you an advertisement. Dove or hawk, which are you? Let the world know your persuasion with these beautiful silver silhouettes. Yes, remove backing to apply to your auto at a shake case, books, door, desk. Pick which one you want, a white dove or a hawk. Oh, wow. <laughs> Call it there. You nuttiness. Hey, we set that wall. We may need that. The human comedy does not stop. Speaking of the human comedy, I have a little thing here. Oh, hey, I saw a bumper sticker. Kind of nice. I just thought you ought to know that uh, there's uh, things are happening out there. I think people are nicer than they used to be. A little bumper sticker. It says, Let Dad have the car on Father's Day. I kind of like that, don't you, Walt? Let Dad have the car. Hey, I reset that there. So we're saluting you out there. Out there, those of you who may be allowed to use the car. Father's Day, George. Uh, speaking of that, uh, you know, uh, now that we're on that uh, subject of uh, the human comedy, how a little there. Yes, there were two little pieces in the Times here. I just thought you ought to be. They were side by side. The first headline says Mexican bullfights resume. Little headline, and right next to it, little headline and a little piece of business right next to it. It says British Pig Club disbands. You want to hear about the British Pig Club, huh? Well, they finally gave up, you know. It's Spalding, England. The Quadring Pig Club, which was founded back in 1861, has disbanded because of lack of support. And we're quoting him here, so get ready with the human comedy music. I'll throw you a quick cue here, Walter. We're quoting the president. He says, by George, young people are just not interested in pigs any longer. Well, let's say it this way, fella. They're not interested in that type of pig. 
Speaking of singing good, though, reset that in there, Walt. Get it in there. Get it in there. You know, people always say, you know, they, 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 they chide me occasionally for making comments about Jersey. And after all, uh, you know, I mean, that's... Uh, I feel that I'm, I'm entitled to say that because I, I probably come from the worst state in the nation for being the nothing state. I mean, let's, let's face it. So I figure that I've earned it, you know. A guy works his way all the way through the Sahara Desert. He can make a few snide remarks about Timbuktu, can he, Walt? He's been there. And uh, we would like to read to you a terrible poem which was included as an advertisement in a local newspaper and uh, sent to me by a kid in Jersey. He says, Shepherd man, he said, uh, Jersey ain't the only state that uh, misses the point. Bring it on there, just look quiet there. Here's an ode to the Midwest. And we read this in its entirety. Indiana, no blustering summit or coarse gorge. No Florid, lure, no flora lurid as disaster flares. No great vacuities where tourists gape. Nor mountains hoarding their height like millionaires. Ah, oh, Indiana, more delicate. The ten-foot knolls give flavor of hill to Indiana souls. Topography is perfect. Curio size, deft as landscape in museum cases. What is beautiful is friendly and underfoot, not flaunted like theater curtains in our faces. No peak or jungle obscures the blue sky. Our land, oh fair Indiana, rides smoothly in the softest eye. Oh, wow. Man is the prominent fauna of our state. Elsewhere, circus creatures stomp and leer with heads like crags or clumps. But the delirious nature, once in a lucid interval, sobering here, left repenting her extravagant plan, conspicuous on our fields, the shadow of man. Translated, that means there ain't nothing in Indiana, but uh, <laughs> a lot of guys walking around. <laughs> the power of positive nuttiness never leaves us. Uh, you know, speaking of the power of positive nuttiness, I've just we've got to get things all straight in the way here. We've got a little note here. Here's a little one ad here for sale. 65-foot rocket. Seats 55. Movie projector and sound. That sounds like a fun game. Yeah, you can buy it. It's a reasonable... Little uh, medical note out here. It says, "Can swearing be controlled?" Uh, see, this got a disease known as uh, Tourette's disease, involuntary cursing, in which the sufferer has an uncontrollable need to shout obscenities. Tourette's disease. That's called. It's also called the New York cab driver syndrome. Oh, I'm just thinking about that, the dove and the hawk there. You can have it tattooed on... Hey, listen, did we have a fantastic time out at East Brunswick? Oh, what a night that was. Unbelievable night. 
I'll tell you. And tonight, uh, we're going to have to salute the play. Speaking of the human comedy, bring me a little of that human comedy music there, Walter, please. What a night at East Brunswick, New Jersey. Oh, it was just, you know, I was, I drove out there, you know, to, to go to the, I was going to do this big show in my auditorium there. And I was going along picturesque, beautiful Route 18, one of the loveliest of all the Jersey highways. When the, I suddenly ran into a giant traffic jam. It seems that there was a four-car collision, Walt. Four Jersey cars full of Jersey natives tried to get into the, you know, the big two guys from Harrison store. Over there. All at once, they were having a sale. You never heard more clattering and banging, more wood thumping, and more cracking up of grills and bumping of trunks. And they all stood around and yelled and hollered because they missed the sale. So we salute Jersey out there and all your splendiferous, splendiferous, Jersey. Bring it up. That's it. Very good. Oh, yes. Uh, while we were there, there was a delegation from South River High School. And they presented me, Walt, with a five-foot Jews harp. And I mean a real Jews harp, a gigantic Jews harp. I mean, it was the kind of Jews harp King Kong could have used real good. And someday I'm going to bring it in the studio here, and we're going to hook the echo chamber on this baby, and I'm going to Hogan twang away. I'm going to play. I'm going to play. Yes, sir, that's my baby on my five foot Jews harp, and just lever all the queens. Very nice, very nice. We still... Oh, we have a note here, too, also. Uh, he's a terrible kid here. He says he rolled into our Jersey town, the man from the Chutzpah State, with his car of grandeur, a magnificent thing made from a kohlrabi crate. Out he stepped from his powerful car, the man from the Chutzpah State. He rushed through the door, onto the stage, knowing that he is late. The audience will cheer, he thought, the man from the Chutzpah State. He looked at the crowd, an anxious group, their eyes were filled with hate. <laughs> they yelled, they screamed at the man from the Chutzpah State. Let's string them up! Now, Pollywogs! The show was only bait. In the dim light of evening sunset swayed the man from the Chutzpah State as he quietly hung from a tall oak tree. He was immortally pronounced throughout the land as the flop from the Chutzpah State. Doctor! <laughs> oh, man, his slob art rampant. All right, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Speaking of slob art, that reminds me, this is W.O.R. Friendly old New York, the uh, Hutzpah town. And uh, let's see, we've got the... Oh, yes, speaking of Hutzpah. Well, listen here, I'm uh, more and more people. One guy wrote me and says, Shepard, you know what I do? Oh, I really get my old man bugged. He says, I've got one of these posters of you. And he says, uh, he says, the old man, he says, the old man can't stand you. He says, Every time he hears you on the radio, he flips. He says, the old man hollers, turn that nut off! And he says, and I turned this nut off. He says, all right, I turn it off. And he says, and then I light this light under your poster. Not a key. He says, there's a lot of ways to bug the old man, kid. 
And speaking poster, we've been getting a lot of notes, you know, people saying, where do, where do you get that obscene picture of you? And that for the matter for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, it was taken during the second movement of my underwater ballet. You, you've seen me do that, Walt. Electra revisited. Beautiful thing. And uh, it was taken during my side, the second movement of this, uh, of this magnificent underwater ballet. And it's when I've got the tights on there shining in the light. And for those of you who have a store, a local store, who only sell these little uh, Christmas cards and little greeting cards and stuff like that, like, uh, you know, uh, roses are red, violets are blue. Ooh, do I know some lyrics to that? I better not get <laughs> You know that one, don't you? I'm sure you do, Walt. You know all of them. Uh, if you would like to uh, pick up one of these posters and you don't want to go out of the house to do it, or maybe you're scared to go out of the house or can't go out of the house, you send a buck and a quarter to Ogre here at W. O R. That's O G R E. Ogre. At W O R. You know, it was terrible, Walt. Did you hear what happened? Well, all this mail, you know, started to come in, marked Ogre. And they, they sent it all up to Bob Smith's office at first. They didn't. <laughs> they did. <laughs> Hi, Smitty. How are you, man? Oh, oh yes. Uh, we better get on here with our show. We've got a little show here. Got to get on with the. Uh, and speaking of shows, before we go any further, we've got the limelight again this week. Believe it or not, we're going to carry on with it. And uh, there's a big mob down there this week, fist fighting and yelling, hollering and pushing. Did you hear that crowd? That was a wild crowd this week. I don't know what happened there. No, I just don't know. What, what were they doing? Were they spiking the root beer or something down there? There was one old lady who was just fantastic in the middle of the crowd this week, past week, at the limelight. And, uh, you know, she's a nice lady. You know, the kind of lady, Walt, with the blue hair and the rimless glasses. And, you know, she had a flowered girdle on, you know, that kind of lady. Very nice with the with the black high heel pumps and the whole business, you know. She was clutching a little theater program. I had a feeling that she thought she was in the uh, Hello Dolly or something. I don't know what was going on there. But this, this old doll, I'll tell you, it was insane. She kept knocking the tables over, and she was drinking out of what looked like a ketchup bottle. Now, uh... I, I mean, <laughs> it was fantastic. I was up there show. I couldn't believe it. Then there was another one. Of course, uh, uh, you, have you ever heard what horseradish will do to you? You don't know? You mean you know about bananas and you know about nutmeg and you don't know about horseradish? Oh. No, seriously, you mean you don't know? I guess you're serious. Well, I thought that was such common knowledge that it's ridiculous. You mean you've never heard of a horseradish sniffer? Well, I'm not going to be the one to tell you that, baby. I am not going to be the one. I am not going to be the one. As a matter of fact, a lady wrote me, you know, a lady came up to me the other day. It was a terrible moment at the limelight. She says, Mr. Shepard. And I said, yes. She says, I heard you. A terrible thing happened. She says, after your show the other night, when you did the show about the potato... But you took this potato and you cut it in half when you were a kid. You and Schwartz and Flick. And you made this little hole on top of the potato and you squeezed a quarter between the two halves real hard. You know, actually we squeezed a half dollar real hard between it. And then you opened it up and you took the half dollar out and then you squeezed it together again. And then you poured lead into it. You wound up with a phony half dollar. She says, you know what happened? She says, that I got up early in the morning. She says, I heard some noise in the kitchen. And she says, my two kids were making quarters. She says, you know, and, and they both got credit cards. 
<laughs> oh, it's getting a little silly. Speaking of credit cards, uh, I I just had a great moment. I, I guess one of the reasons why I'm, you notice I'm kind of uh, exuberant tonight. Well, I just hit the jackpot. You don't hit the jackpot every day. Really don't. I uh, only twice in my life, besides this time, have I hit the jackpot. You see, just about five minutes ago, I put a quarter in our Coke machine here, and out came two Cokes. I shouldn't have said it on the air. There'll be somebody after me, but out came two Cokes. I don't know what happened. I just put a quarter. Boom! They both flew out. Well, you know, uh, I thanked the machine. Uh, I, you know, once in a while, the machine feels like setting you up. After all, you've been buying there for a long time. You know how a bartender is. You, you go into a bar long enough, and he'll, he'll finally pop eventually. It's courtesy. Well, I got two Cokes out of this thing. Out of the $8 million that I've spent in that Coke machine, finally it came out with two Cokes. Now, that that Coke machine, by the way, has many times taken quarters from me and never given me anything. Nothing. Not even a buy your leave. Nothing. Never thank me. Nothing. You know? Of course, it's probably an indigent Coke machine. Needed it more than I did. So, uh, I put the two, you know, I put the quarter in. Out came the two Cokes. There was a little brief moment of, you know, we, you know, Wow. And I remembered the two other times that I hit the jackpot with the great machine. Hit me a little of that, uh, that little music there, Walt. Just a little bit. It's part of the human, part of the human comedy. But you know that the age of the machine is now just about over, friends. It really is. We are now moving into the electronic age. And the machine will be as outmoded as, uh, oh, as uh, spinning wheels. Outmoded as uh, Model T Fords, butter churns, all that jazz. Yeah, that stuff. The machine is going to be done very shortly. We're now entering the era of the modular electronic uh, device. That's right. Where all thinking will be done by these little modular electronic uh, transistor type cells. And the they'll package and wrap, shoot it out wrap it up and package and shoot up. As a matter of fact, you know what they're even working on now? They're working on an electronic machine that buys. You know, a lot of machines make things. A lot of electronic equipment creates things. The big problem is to find enough people to buy this jazz that we make. And the next big movement, of course, will be consuming machines. Electronic, of course. That will consume all the stuff we make. And therefore, we can all put daffodils in our hair and, you know, like Rousseau and all those uh, like to be in, love in, stand around in, fist fight in people, and just go drifting off into the woods and dance around toadstools and put little green hats on our hair and wear little curly shoes that curl up in the end and, you know, learn to play the guitar. Yeah, I think one day the time is going to come when, when most of mankind will, de will literally depart the society that we've created. Society being the great machine, you know, the roads and the highways and the cars and the gas stations and the telephone lines. Well, already, you know, they've got plenty of telephones that talk back and forth machines. You know, they're electronic. When I use the term machine, I'm not using it in the old machine sense. The electronic devices that talk back and forth to each other. In fact, I think, I don't want to make any accusations, but I think we've got one executive here who is transistorized. I'm serious. Because every time I talk to him, I get the same answer. And it sounds like it's on tape. I mean, you know, so, quite, well, you, you, you were at the, the, uh, the late, unlamented New York World's Fair, weren't you, Walt? Didn't you see that electronic Lincoln? 
He was a heck of a lot better than the old Lincoln. I mean, the real Lincoln, you know, drank bourbon and spit and <laughs> he wrestled. Oh, yeah, he did a lot of stuff. He really did, you know. He was a great president. And uh, I think the one that Walt Disney made was much better because he would come out every 20 minutes and give the speech and go back. He didn't do all, you know, all that other stuff. You know, very unpopular, a lot of that other stuff. And uh, I think eventually you're going to have transistorized presidents and stuff because uh, uh, it's, it's got to come. Because we don't like ordinary mortal people any longer. Ordinary mortal people keep making mistakes. And, and uh, since we don't like ourselves generally, Freud has said this, then why should we like somebody who's up there running the show, you know? As we relate to him, he's a, you know, he's a man, and we know how men are. They're like us. Ridiculous. And so we're going to have to have something that's transistorized, that's got to work. And, and when I got those two cokes out of there, I thought, well, maybe the machine, maybe the electronic device does have some good in it after all. Feels a little sorry for a more, you know, <laughs> an ordinary mortal. And so one day, uh, I had this terrible experience, though. I, I'm always a little nervous around the machines, one kind or another. Now, I'm not, I'm not nervous in the Walter Mitty sense. I'm nervous in that uh, I've had a couple of interesting experiences that have happened with them. Uh, like, for example, the time uh, that uh, me and... Um, well, you don't want to hear about this. This is kind of a sickening story, but me and Flick had this car that we owned together, you know. And, and, uh, we used to work on it all the time, and, and uh, we'd put it in the backyard and put it up on blocks. And we were always yanking out the transmission. We'd buy a transmission in the junkyard for $2, and we put it on. We find out why we bought it for $2, of course, when we get it on. I had more, in my time, I have put on and taken off more balsa wood transmissions you can shake a stick at. I'll tell you, I got so that I could yank an axle mad with, in my sleep. Uh, I had this car that used to break axles. Uh, well, I would say, you know, you know how some people just sit at a table and they break matchsticks because they're nervous? This car used to just break axles when it wasn't even going. You just sit out there. I, I remember one time just being asleep. I'm lying in the sack there, and, and the car's out in the garage, and all of a sudden, ping, I hear the axle break. It was just breaking the axle, just, you know, this was bugged. And so I got so that I could break, you know, pull out axles, break axles, I could grind valves. And one time, Schwartz and... Leck and myself were out in the backyard. We got the head off, and we're grinding the valves on this baby. And, you know, it's kind of a struggle. You, you, you know, a little drag. You know, we're grinding the valves. You've grown the valve seat. You've done that, of course. No, nothing to that. Well, <laughs> I won't say that. And we had the we had the pistons pulled in the whole business. We're putting on rings. And the old man Brunner came home. Next door, well, Brunner, of course, had been drunk for 422 years, and it was reputed that when Brunner worked, he was a mechanic. He was, they always said he was a mechanic. He was always walked around one of these big wooden boxes with a handle on it, and that, uh, that was always called his tools. Well, actually, it was a prop. He never worked. He just carried it around. And he had this big box of tools, and he came staggering up the drive, and he took one look at this car. And the young Junior Bruner was out there in the back with us. And the, he's helping us grind the valves. And old Matt Bruner took one look at our car and says, Hey, you guys, oh, let me, I'll show you how to grind the valves. And uh, he went staggering over. Well, he's, he's one of the kid's dads. You know, you don't push the kid's dad around. He's a dad. So he goes staggering up to the front of the car, and he looks into the, into the guts of the car. We got the head off and the whole bit, see? And he's been drinking for about a week and a half, and he looked down into this thing. And, and the, of course, this car had given us a lot of trouble. We were averaging about six miles to the gallon on that car, gas. I mean, really, I mean, a terrible car. And uh, uh, we paid $17 for it. 
and it was getting about six, seven miles the gallon. We were grinding the valves. We are going to try to get more gas mileage on this thing. We'd ground the valves nine times in the six months before that, and it was always downhill. And so old man Bruner looks down in there. Have you ever seen a real old-time mechanic look in a car? Really, you know, the kind of guy that he's got grease under his fingernails and grease all over his overalls, that whole bit. And old man Bruner set his tools down. He put them down and he looks at him. Like, get over here. I'll show you how to grind it. And we had a valve grinder made out of an egg beater. You know the kind? The leg beater. put the little valve grinder. We had the valve grinding uh, fluid, the pumice and all that stuff. We're grinding the valve there and struggling away there. We got it all at Montgomery Ward. Or we call it Monkey Ward, see? And that we're working on the valves. And old man Bruner comes staggering up. He says, get out of the way. I'll shut that grinder valves. And we backed away, of course. Little realizing, a little of that uh, uh, comedy uh, music there, Walter. A little realizing we were about to take part in one of those great moments that would have made any uh, any two-foot section of a Laurel and Hardy picture at their best. Looked like greasy kid stuff. Old Bruner, tanked to the ears, reeled and sort of leaned backwards and then bent over the empty, you know, the whole open hood, put the head off. He looked down in there and he's scared. Yeah, give me that grinding tool. I'll show you kids how to grind a valve. I've been grinding a valve there as a little kid. Get away now. Stand back. I'll show you how to grind a damn valves. Okay. Well, he started to grind the valves, and I guess it was the first, you know, he hadn't worked for a long time, and it kind of got him excited. Uh, anyway, it all worked against him. He'd been drinking near beer. He'd been drinking spiked beer. He'd been drinking bathtub gin. He'd been drinking green beer for about the last six or seven days, you know. And he hadn't been home for the whole week. And all of a sudden, it all backed up on him. He's going, oh, get away, I'll show you, kids. And, of course, young Junior Brunner's standing there proudly. That's my pop. He's going to fix the valves. When all of a sudden, out it all came, right into our motor. 17 gallons of used green beer. Bring it up. That's a terrible story, I told you. Well, of course, we all sort of staggered back. The fantastic moment. And and Mrs. Bruner looked out of the kitchen. She said, you get in here, Ralph. And he went staggered in. And that's the last we saw of him that day. Well, we tried to get it all out. And we found that it wasn't easy. It didn't come out. So finally, Flick says, oh, what the heck? Let's just put the head back on. <laughs> so we did. We put the head back on. And do you know, from that minute on, we got 24 miles to the gallon. A secret ingredient. And by George, you know, we talked about that all over town, all around town. Everybody was all excited about it. And this it was a true secret ingredient. And we got mileage like we never got before. And now every time I I see on TV when Jerry Coleman is talking about the flying A, about the gas, and every time I see Esso and all these guys talking about a secret ingredient, you know, they always give it some jazzy name like TLP or VD7 or PDQ, something like that. I know what that secret ingredient is. You ain't kidding me, you guys. They got wind of it. Those guys are not slow. Well, have you ever driven through Jersey over here when you go past Sinclair and Esso and all that place? Well, it doesn't not smell like Chanel Number no. 5, does it? Kind of a familiar smell, isn't it? Well, don't talk to me. I'm just saying, you know. 
There's a lots of ways. Oh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of wise old sayings. Like, there's a lot of ways, I always say, to skin a cat. You ever think of it that way? That's what I call getting right down to the meat of it, huh? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. All righty, rule. Well, of course, then I had another experience with a, with a machine, which I will... I don't really like to talk about because it's kind of traumatic. It happened at a time... It was like Saturday night. I did a show out there at the limelight. I was talking about the fact. And it, I, I've always thought this, that, that one of the great traumatic moments of a guy's life, even though it isn't often... Uh, it, I don't think Freud uh, pointed this out. Uh, it isn't even often talked about. But it's, it's the things that happen to him in the very first jobs he's ever had. Do you agree with me, Walt? I mean... You know, you walk out into the world, you're, you're, you're like a peeled onion. You know, you're just like a, a, a fledgling. You're robbing just about to fly from the nest. And you walk out into this great, big, white, wonderful Horatio Alger world, ready to take them all on. Oh, boy, how exciting. And the first thing that happens, <laughs> that's right. You get one on the seat of your BVDs. <laughs> I mean, and you don't, you know, you don't, you stagger back. I don't know why. What happened? Well, it's just the first little taste of existence, reality, the truth, the way it is, life, eternity, the vital juices, existence. You know, you can't get blood out of a radish. Wait a minute, that isn't right. You can't get blood out of a carrot, carrot. That's it. You can't get blood out of a carrot. It's funny how these things. And, uh, well, you can't. I mean, uh, you, you laugh, but I don't think it's very easy. Well, I suppose you can get a little blood. I suppose if you squeeze hard enough, it depends on the carrot. But my mother always used to say you can't get blood out of a carrot. And so I think that's quite true. Penny saved is a penny earned. I figure that if you look before you leap, your life will be in trouble. I say that. Well, the only time I ever did look before I leaped, I fell on, well, it's a long story. You know, get involved. It get, gets pretty sickening. But I was just a kid, you know, and I... I had this job with a steel mill. Well, now the steel mill is a... If you, can, if you can imagine the biggest machine that you can imagine multiplied by 7 billion, and then you multiply that by another 7 billion, and then you throw in a little dash of uh, Dante's Inferno, you throw in a little hell, uh, you throw in uh, a kind of a nightmare, you throw in the excitement of a pro football game that's gone wild. Now, you've got uh, a little slight... A little taste of how it is in the steel mill. The ground shudders and thunders. And when you're living in a steel mill town, of course, the steel mill is the whole world. It just sort of goes along the... just stretches for mile after mile along the horizon like a mountain range in the distance. And mountain ranges are important to people when they live near the mountains. You wind up, you've got to go. You've got to climb it. you just got to. And so anybody who lives around the steel mills eventually... You know, he has to go climb the steel mill, eventually. One way or another, get a job, stand around outside the gate, or just go, oh, yes, on a, on, a, on a spring evening like this, one of my old man's biggest kicks was to pile everybody in the car and just drive down to the lakeshore and just watch the steel mill. Well, it's a lot to watch. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, it is. It's like, it's like looking through a little window into the third or fourth inner circle of Hades. <sighs> boy. You'd see those great big ingots rolling back and forth, and you'd see that, that long, thin, blue, purple, red strip of the strip mill, the hot strip mill zinging along, and it all glows in the night. 
And half of these mills, they don't even have lights in them because they can see by the light of the fires and the, the, the strip and the ingots themselves. And then you'd hear the ringing and the bells and you'd hear the sound, the great roar of the plate mill. Oh, boy, it's exciting. You could see it all reflected on the water. One of the most beautiful sights in all of America is to drive on the highway uh, between... Oh, let's see. You take you go right along the south shore of the lake, and you drive past Republic Steel over the Calumet River on the south side of Chicago, Republic Ryerson Steel, and you look to your right as you're going north, as you're coming up towards Chicago, and you see this river set down there. And the river is low. It's one of these rivers that's been lowered. It's deep, and the ore boats come in. And the river is set low, and on both sides of the river, at 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, the steel mill rises like some insane volcano on both sides of it, and all the water dances with purple and red and green and orange and blue lights. Wow. It looks like it's it just... Uh, and you see these big trestle bridges moving over it and back, and then once in a while you can see a faint puff of a, of a, of a Bessemer converter as she tips, and a great shower of sparks go out over the river. It really looks like uh, what uh, most people would think, I suppose, is hell. It's right there. And so naturally, you have this thing very close to you. You've got to go to it. Oh, the devil's got the best lines, friends. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you, he's got a lot better lines than uh, Billy Graham, for example. And then, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just exciting, spooky, and scary. The whole bit is going on. You have to go. And so eventually, you're all, everybody who's ever lived out there has been sucked in once or twice. So I'm a kid. See, I'm walking around. I get a job. And I go, oh, wow. I'm going to go into the mill now. The mill that we've always been watching from the outside. And now I'm in the mill. And I'm being taken down to the mail room. And I'm a messenger. And there were eight or nine messengers, all of whom had to learn these routes throughout the mill. And, the, and by the way, the route, or if you prefer route, if you're a Jersey type, it's a route. Uh, each route, you had to run at a full gallop. I mean, you had to be in condition like no, like no track man ever, because you ran eight hours a day under swinging overhead cranes. And you dart under a couple of Bessemer converters when they're in full action. You learn to have footwork, man. And you move up and down through the hot strips and through the cold strip mill and through the plate mill, through the 14-inch merchant mill, through the 40-inch soaking pit and through the rail yards and the number 1 AC and the number 2 AC. You can tell I've been there, can't you? And you move, I mean, you, you get so that you move instinctively. You can hear a bad sound. You know you're in trouble. Yeah, you just hear it on all sides. You're running through this fantastic, enormous cacophony of machine. Well, I made a mistake one day. I'm going through the plate mill, the 100-inch plate mill. Now, the 100-inch plate mill is something else again. Uh, I guess the 100-inch plate mill is what most people think of. It's the second thing they think of when they think of a steel mill. When you say steel mill to most people, what they really think of is the open hearth. And they always see this big ladle pouring. That's the steel mill. Well, that's only one tiny, itsy-bitsy, wee part of the steel mill. There are other and more exciting parts of the steel mill that you never see. They keep you away from that. It's a little too dangerous. Uh, a little too exciting. And uh, in some ways, even more colorful, a curious sort of way. And one of them is the 100-inch plate mill. 
Now, the 100-inch plate mill takes ingots. Now, you've seen an ingot, a pig. Uh, an ingot is about, oh, I'd say roughly the size of a Mustang car. Now, that's a big chunk of iron, roughly. And it weighs about 47 trillion tons. It weighs about as much as the Empire State Building. But it's a big chunk of metal that is white hot, and I mean white hot. Now, uh, most of us, uh, when we think of heat, we think of a stove. Or if we really are going far out, we think of a soldering iron. Something that's really hot. Well, let me tell you how hot an ingot is. A real ingot that has just come out, that's just been taken out of the out of the mill, out of the mold, and it's being taken over to the 100-inch plate mill. And it's taken on flatbed cars. And these are low, flat cars that come crawling across the dark ground. And they crawl very, uh, with, with a kind of surety of purpose, a kind of uh, maniacal directness, because they've got to get over there. Because if this thing gets a little bit too cool, between the mold and the plate mill, there is trouble. I mean, real trouble. And so they just move. You've got to get out of the way. Well, you can stand on a January day when the temperature is 20 below zero, maybe. You can stand a block away from a string of ingots and feel the heat hit your cheek like, like some kind of a hot breath out of an oven. A block away, and I mean it. I'm not exaggerating. And the closer you get, the more withering it is. And once in a while, you'll, 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 you'll have what they call a cherry ingot. And that's for another purpose. They take those over to the 40-inch soaking mill. We could go into that process, another process. But a cherry ingot is one of the most beautiful things in the world. It's an ingot that has been slowly and very carefully, very, 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 uh, with precision, it has been uh, cooled off slightly. And it gets a, the most beautiful color of dove gray around the edges, but gray, the kind of gray that you see on the bottom of certain birds, a kind of light dove, soft, ashy gray that's tinged with the most beautiful, subtle cherry color, and it gets deeper and deeper towards the center of it. That's an interesting looking ingot. It's also a dangerous ingot for another reason, because if a drop of water comes down out of the sky when one of those ingots is being transported past. Just a drop of water, like a little rain comes down. It hits this ingot, and it causes a peculiar kind of an explosion. And when it... Uh, who, I, I, what is the uh, term? But it's a kind of explosion where the drop of water hits something that hot, and it blows the shale off of this, this ingot. The shale is a kind of strange scale. It's like a scum, a soft fur that forms over it. It's a combination of oxidation and extreme heat and other things. And it hits it, and it sprays over an area maybe 30 feet. It's a very dangerous scene. But nevertheless, these big, beautiful, white-hot ingots rolling along on these flatbeds. And I am, I'm chugging into the 100-inch plate mill. Well, now, you've, you've all seen pictures. You've seen pictures of how they roll steel back and forth, this big roll. Back and forth it goes, and each time it goes through this roller, it's like an enormous rolling pin, like really two rolling pins. As it goes back and forth between these rolling pins, it squashes it 
flatter and flatter and flatter and flatter and flatter. This huge ingot, this thing that's about the size of a Mustang. Until at the end of the process, which uh, takes uh, different times depending on how thin they want to roll it, this thing comes out a hundred inches wide. And it's maybe oh, an inch thick. It rolls it like a big piece of dough. Well, as you can, you know, you can realize when rolling a piece of steel down and rolling it like dough, there are pressures that you can't believe. I mean, oh boy, can you imagine rolling steel out? Just rolling it, you know, it's just like rolling it out. And so there are pressures, oh, and once in a while one of these rolls explodes because of a defect in it or some kind of a, some kind of a, a, a mechanical thing happens. And, uh, man, mammy bar the door. And so this day, I am chugging along. I'm a male boy. You know, I got my mail sack on me. And uh, it's uh, one of those moments, you know, of, of, uh, of, extreme, uh, of extreme hurry, extreme rush and push. I am late. And I realize that. Now, always up to this point, and let me tell you this, I think almost all accidents occur in life when you're late. I just wonder how many guys are killed in their car because they're late. How many guys uh, make that fatal mistake because they're running 15 minutes late? And instead of, uh, you know, instead of getting out 15 minutes early, they went out 15 minutes late, and that's the end of the ball game. And I'm running along, and every day I've been running past this mill. Every day I've been running past this machine. Now, this machine had a huge bank on all sides of it of relays. And way up at the top is the guy running this roll machine. He's got these big levers running it back and forth. And as she would run through on the last cut, on the last, on the last roll, or maybe the second to the last roll, there was an automatic machine that would toss out on it. Ah, but I'm getting ahead. I see this roller up ahead of me. I'm in a hurry, see. I'm running like mad, see. I'm running fast. Shepard's running fast. Faster and faster. I'm late. Holy smokes. I'm late. I'm looking at my mail sack now. I gotta, I'm sorting the Coke plant mail, which is coming up next. Let's see. Coke plant, cold strip, number two, tin mill lab. Right out loud. Oh, I forgot to drop a mail off at the number two AC. Oh, I'm late. I'm ten minutes late. The truck's at the end of the mail waiting for me. I dart past that great big roll machine. Boom. She's going back, boom, boom, when all of a sudden, just as I got opposite, I'm three feet away from it, all of a sudden, boom! Ah! There was a fantastic explosion. I reeled back. I didn't know what happened. I ran past that 100-inch plate roller just at the moment they dropped this big shovel full of salt on that ingot they are crushing at exactly the wrong moment. Well, they put salt on these ingots at the right instant as they're rolling it back and forth. The salt forms a chemical reaction with this fantastically hot piece of metal and blows the shale right off of it. And it's like stepping right into the middle of a hand grenade barrage. It's like stepping right into the middle of a giant shower of shrapnel. Millions of pieces of burning metal. My jacket's burnt. Thousands of little holes. My hat, my mail, my shoes. I wasn't touched. But boy, did I learn a lesson. Woo-hoo-hoo. Did I learn a lesson. 